0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beatty. Today we're talking to Dr. Lindsay Black, a lecturer in criminology at the School of Law and Criminology in Maynooth University in Ireland. Dr. Black researches in the areas of gender and punishment, the death penalty, historical and post-colonial criminology, and borders. In 2022, she was awarded an Irish Research Council starting laureate for her project, Contested Space, Penal Nationalism on the Northern Ireland Border. This is a four-year project which uses archival and participant research methodologies to explore the meanings of crime, punishment, and security at the Northern Irish border over a hundred-year period. She has also worked with an international team of researchers on issues of punishment, public opinion, and the death penalty in the Caribbean, looking at the colonial legacies of punishment and questions of law reform. Along with Louise Brangen and Dear Healy, she is a co-editor of Histories of Punishment and Social Control in Ireland perspectives from from periphery. She has been researching women and murder in post-independence Ireland for over a decade now, and recently published her first monograph with Manchester University Press, entitled Gender and Punishment in Ireland, Women, Murder and the Death Penalty, 1922 to 1964. And it's that book that we're here to talk about today. Dr. Black, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks very much, Aidan.
0: So you probably get this as a kind of an opening comment quite a bit, but this is obviously a quite grim thing to talk about and to write about.
1: I I honestly think it took me a good few years to kind of see the I don't know, to properly feel the human tragedy in it. I don't know if that makes me sound very callous, but I think there is a a tendency with academics perhaps to to be able to separate, you know, the knowledge and what you are learning and from, you know, the everyday bits of people's lives where, where things have gone badly wrong and obviously I, I work in criminology so a lot of the time we're researching stuff that has gone wrong um, stuff that is is not a happy story and I, the reason I have ended up in this area of research is um, a book by Annette Ballinger where she looked at the women who were executed in England and Wales uh, from 1900 to the 1950s and I, I just find it fascinating. And there was something about the storytelling aspect of it that she kind of went through these individual cases and she like, spoke about their background and she spoke about the, the offenses and then she spoke about the, the trial. And I, I just find it fascinating. And I suppose in, in history and, and in criminology, there is an aspect of that. There is a vein of the work which looks at women who commit crimes and women who kill. So then I was interested in what, if I looked at that question in the Irish context, what I would see. And and I think the grimness of it um, came kind of slowly and, you know, there'd be days, like long days where you're in the archives and you're going through, you know, paper after paper about a case of infant murder, perhaps. And it's only really at the end of the day that you take a step back and just think, God, I feel very drained and... I'm just sitting in the archives, but, oh yeah, no, I've been reading horrific details of, you know, horrible tragedy all day. Um, And There was one case in particular which kind of resonated with me. Um, I think she'd she'd killed her brother. I don't know what that says about me and my brother, but I just, I found it very upsetting. And I think every so often you get this blast of the fact that these are tragic cases. And bizarrely, it was only after um, I'd had my that I then found the infant murder cases even harder to read about. about. But I think, yeah, it's a very grim topic, but I was really attracted to the stories, I think, Um, and yeah, have that academic ability to kind of cauterize it off a wee bit.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, So maybe if we could ask you to give us some kind of Just some good statistical data basically to help us understand this topic that you're studying. How prevalent was murder in in 20th century Ireland? How prevalent was the death penalty?
1: Um, not, not that prevalent, um, in terms of looking at murder and the death penalty, you know, Ireland is, you know, if, if you want a bonanza of killings, state or otherwise, Ireland's probably not the jurisdiction to be looking at in this period. You know, killings are rare. For men, obviously, there's like peaks and troughs that coincide with uh, what's going on Uh, politically. There's a spillover from the Troubles, obviously, in the North. Um, But in terms of ordinary homicides or what could be called ordinary homicides, um, you know, they're quite low in terms of international rates. And then for women, it's incredibly rare. But obviously, there's a big caveat around this when it comes to, to the killing of infants. But I suppose what we know from from the data that we can kind of piece together rates of interpersonal violence and homicide have been plummeting for centuries so you know you have really really interesting work over the uh the past 200 years in the Irish context from people like Ian O'Donnell where he just kind of shows the downward trend in homicides and you get to uh, the 1950s in Ireland and you have basically it's been dubbed by some as the policeman's paradise. The rates goes down to like less than two. And internationally, that's just incredibly rare. There's a handful of killings recorded in the state in 1954. Uh, so you, and that's also coincidentally the year that the last person is executed in Ireland. So you have these very kind of very low numbers in terms of the people, um, who are being executed and in terms of the homicide rates. That starts to tick up again a wee bit uh, from the seventies in Ireland. And then obviously from the seventies, the eighties and the nineties, um, it's increasing again. But looking at Ireland in international kind of context, there's a, there's a huge kind of crime drop. And then you get to the post-war period. And from the sixties on, you have the increase in crime. Again, you have the increase in homicide rates and in Ireland, everything kind of happens on the same time scale, but a wee bit later. So the '60s, people, like places like Britain and the US, are having huge spikes in their homicide again. And in Ireland, it happens the decade after, but it does happen. But the period that I'm looking at, you have very low numbers of women and men uh, being prosecuted for homicide, or or indeed being executed. And in terms of the death penalty, the the context is that we retain the death penalty on independence, and we retain it always because. There's the argument, well, we need something because of the political violence, we need something that's a deterrent that's on the books. And then of course, the vast majority of people who were executed have nothing to do with political violence. And, but that's you know the case up until 64, when you get the first big reform and then 1990, whenever it's finally abolished. So, um, pretty low numbers of killings, pretty low numbers of executions in this period as well. Mm-hmm. That's a very so, lucky answer. Sorry. And...
0: Sure. No, no, that's great. Um, so, in the cases that you have, Simon, of women who commit murder, why are they doing it? Like, how, how is murder a gendered phenomenon in 20th century Ireland?
1: One of the main things that, that affects the, the rates of persons prosecuted for murder, and it kind of is a bit of a, a technicality, is that infant murder is lumped in with adult murder until the mid-century when you get infanticide being officially passed as an offense that's like manslaughter but until that happens you have um women who who give birth outside of marriage and for i suppose a significant minority of these women they are prosecuted for killing um for killing that baby and this is this makes up then because we don't reform, in law, this makes up a sizable pro- a proportion of the women who are prosecuted for murder. So it becomes a really gendered profile in that you have just all these women being prosecuted for murder, but it's infant murder. And in the rare circumstances where those women are convicted, there's not a chance that they're going to be executed. And yet, you know, they're kind of processed through the courts in the same way. They're going into the courts with the potential sentence of death hanging over them. Um, And this is kind of one of the interesting things about the way in which it's gendered is that if Ireland, you know, like England and Wales, had reformed infanticide law in 1922, I know we were busy then, you know, it would have entirely changed the profile of people who were potentially under sentence of death. It would entirely have changed the the profile of the women who were under sentence of death. Instead of 22, you know, you would have had 10 instead. Um, But but they don't, and um, they don't reform it in the 30s. It takes like the end of the next decade before they come back and reform it. And they've already kind of worked out their own ad hoc system uh, for these cases, especially where uh, the women are convicted of the murder. But So it takes them a very long time. So what you have is this incredibly gendered profile whereby you look at the woman sentenced to death and the vast majority of these women are, are there because they've killed an infant.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and then how much does class also play a role in this in terms of who does or does not get prosecuted or sentenced to to death for, for yeah.
1: Uh class is huge in terms of the um, the profile so the the vast majority of women are women from uh, the labouring classes they're working class women with kind of very little formal education and even though so even now, you know, you can look at Irish prisons and you can kind of pinpoint the postcodes of where those prisoners come from. So we obviously know that class continues to play a huge role in crime. And with murder, that would be less the case. There's more likely to be a more diverse class profile just because of the nature of uh, the crime. But with my sample, there was very, like very few women who you would describe as being um, of the middle classes or anywhere approaching it. There's a and as well. They're so they're working class, but they're labouring class. And that really dictates the the profile of the women. So, for example, most of these women live in the countryside, you know, crime and lethal violence or interpersonal violence is very much a rural problem in Ireland until much later than it is elsewhere. That's one of the the kind of Irish specific profiles, I suppose, compared to places like Britain or the rest of Western Europe. So you only, in in terms of, for example, the women who are convicted of murder, they all cluster in rural Ireland until you get to later in the sample, until you get through to the 40s and 50s, you have a couple of women in Dublin. And that changing time period also kind of reflects the women's prospects for the jobs, their employment. So in the 40s and 50s, you get two women who are nurses, who you, you know, we kind of classify as being in the professions. To an extent, they have more formal education, uh, but that's not the case for the for the majority of women. They're mostly uh, domestic servants, and they're either getting paid for this in someone else's house or they're doing it in their own house for no money. But you know, you have cases like I have. There's one case from the 1920s. Where a young woman has been is ultimately convicted for the murder of her employer, and in questioning, she says, "You know, I was hired out uh, at the at the fair, and I don't know how much money uh, my dad receives, so she's not getting the benefit of any of the work and she's like a living domestic." Um, and you know, there are a couple of cases of women who are from more more middle class. Rural families that have, you know, larger farms, but the vast majority are just in conditions of poverty, living kind of cheek by jowl, um, and yet I don't think that that's, you know, that doesn't mark them out, I suppose, from the rest of their rural counterparts in many ways.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so it's not actually that that these crimes are being committed by the rich, also, and just not getting caught for it. it. It is literally
1: there. I think. Because a lot of the cases are women who are becoming pregnant outside of marriage and then kind of dealing with it on their own, that just means that if the woman has means, she has the means to take care of it. You know, she can go to England, she can have this taken care of, she can go to a nursing home and she can be gone for a period of months and then she can come back. Um, and for most of the women in the sample, that's just not an option. There's, you know, quite a few cases where. The woman is, you know, she's a domestic servant. She's working on a very kind of small landholding owned by someone else. And she gets up in the morning, she'll put the fire on. She feels labor coming on. She'll go outside, she'll have the baby, she'll kill the baby. She'll come in, not be feeling amazing. She'll put the tea on and that's, that's just how it works. And then you kind of, her employer then pieces together what, what's happened and um, but there's just they these are the women without any means to do anything about it. But but like you said, there are clearly women who are able to kind of respond in in ways that they don't end up like this. Mm-hmm.
0: So I mean obviously you're professionally a criminologist, but but in many ways your book also is is clearly operating within the tradition of women's history. Um and, and maybe there's a bit of a, a crude simplification, but often that school of history that tradition of history writing is about is about recovering women's voices but also then saying here's the contribution that women did make to things like the Easter Rising um and there's obviously a very large gap between you know looking at Hannah Sheehy Skeffington or someone like that versus recovering the voice of, of female murderers um so what do you think your work does for Irish women's history what gaps in our knowledge are you sitting in
1: I know it seems quite um quite counterintuitive to say, Hey, but they also did all the killing. Um, it's kind of like, it seems like an anti-feminist argument on the face of it. Um, and she's Skeffington actually wrote a few letters in on a couple of the cases, um, to make a perfectly valid points along the lines of, you know, this woman was tried by a jury, not of her peers. There were no women on her jury. and um, just to mention she's Skeffington. but I think, yeah, I think the line where my research falls down, it's obviously women's history um and it's irish history and then it's also a criminology historical criminology so i'm always wearing multiple hats in the in the women's history um sphere i think it kind of contributes to that work um about ordinary women's lives it's it's just another example of um kind of telling history from below from the people who are not I mean the women in my cases are not getting into the newspapers unless they had committed a crime that was their only way of making a mark in our in our records is when they were before the courts being charged with like horrific crimes and I think you know there's obviously it's a lot of work um out there that is in this vein also that's looking at ordinary women's lives, be it through, you know, crime or migration or like trying to excavate what we know about their sexuality. And I think, I think my work is kind of coming along and building on the kind of fantastic work that's been done already. And I think there is very, very little that marks out the women in, in my research from women who didn't kill and I think that's the most shocking thing about it. They're just, they're very similar. Their lives are just very average until they're not all of a sudden.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so I might ask maybe another question about where your work fits into Irish history writing and what contributions it makes. Um, I know in, in my own research I've come across um, a fairly well known thing I think among Irish historians that when the Free State is building its its censorship regime in the twenties one of the things they are most upset about and most anxious about are British tabloids that have court proceedings that, that go into a lot of tawdry detail about divorce proceedings. Um, and often then looking at things like, you know, crimes of passion or things like this, that, which I assume is a term criminologists don't use. Um, and, and then in, in your book at the very start, you say that that in the various trials that you're studying, um, as you say, the, the themes that came up time and time, time and again are themes of domestic desperation, the deep criminogenic shame of illegitimacy, sexual intrigue, constructions of madness and familial conflicts over inheritance and status. And I would have assumed those are the kinds of themes that nobody wants to openly discuss in 1920 1920s Ireland. Um, so I'd maybe like to focus on that for a few minutes. Like, how did the courts discuss these things? Did they have to use coded language?
1: And they do in certain cases, like with abortion, it's it's never abortion. You're just never seeing that word in the newspapers. Um, and I, you don't really until the 1980s, whenever the debate really kind of blows up. But until then, it's always an illegal operation, which I suppose is also what it was. Um, and with cases, like the really infamous cases like Mimi Cadden in the 50s, um, you know, the kind of notorious backstreet abortionist with her, it's very easy to see what they're talking about because you have so much contextual information to piece together. You know, when they speak about Caden, you know what they're talking about. Um, even though they don't say the words, um, but there are other cases, um, cases where you're reading through the available information and it seems like, uh, there was incest, for example. So there's a a couple of cases from the 30s and in one case the young woman um, has been prosecuted for the murder of her baby and she makes an explicit allegation that her father was uh, the father of the victim but there's another case from the same year where a specific allegation isn't made but the young woman herself is prosecuted for murder and her father is prosecuted for murder as well. And then in the Garda investigation, you could see the guards um, asking, you know, what are the sleeping arrangements in your house? Do you sleep in the same room as your father? And then the context is that her mother has died and she lives alone. And so you can kind of piece together a line of inquiry and the suggestion that there was incest and that she was the victim of abuse And that had resulted in a pregnancy. And especially in that case where they'd said, you know, we're kind of, we're basically prosecuting the father as well, because this is not the first time this has happened, but there's no, you know, that could be, I could be off the mark or that could be the correct interpretation, but they're not saying it. And I suppose, as you know yourself, this is the era of the Carrigan report where, you know, that's an official government report that gets suppressed. Um, because we don't want evidence of any kind of improper sexuality. God forbid, we don't want the Brits to see this.
0: So so were you constantly having to read between the lines? I'm interested in, in sort of the limits of, of what this means for you as a researcher. Are there times where you you came across cases where you think, I think I know what they're talking about, but I can't empirically know for sure.
1: Yeah. And I think that is the, the case. I was speaking recently to a woman. Who is investigating one of the cases in the book, and she has so far spoken to some of the guards who were the original investigating officers, and I find it absolutely fascinating what she's getting from kind of first-hand experience, and what I am reading, which is a you know the the sanitized official government version of what has happened. Um, but on the other hand, I do think there are cases where I was shocked not the level of acceptance of you know sexual intrigue um but a certain willingness to be sympathetic in certain circumstances um there is one case from i think it's from the 20s um and a woman puts an advertisement in a newspaper for the return of her husband because he's he's been missing for years and she clearly wants to move on with her life she has a potential new partner there's evidence there's Letters back and forth between her and her new partner. She wants to to marry again. And very unfortunately for her. Her husband turns up. Uh, so instead of having him declared dead. This man is. Back in her life after many years absence. And she is not thrilled about this. And he dies. Uh, some months later by strychnine poisoning. And. I, <laughs> um, And she bought the strychnine. The day before he died. Under a false name. So this is a slam dunk in terms of a conviction for like manslaughter at the least. But, and, and they don't, the, the jury do not convict her after 90 minutes, they come back and they find her not guilty. And I mean, this is all down to the kind of machinations of a jury, but what seems to have really played a role was the fact that her husband was horrible. Um, you know, he deserted her for years. He was a drinker. And so they acquit, even though it's clear that she's killed her husband. Um, And that's just, but that's fine because sure, wasn't she right? Wasn't he horrible? And there's quite a few cases like that where a woman is having an affair, kills her husband, but because the husband was a wrong-in, the jury acquit. And I just, I find that kind of crazy in the context of what we know about kind of post-independence Ireland.
0: Yeah I mean it's it's fascinating to think how much that really challenges what we think we know. Um so maybe if we can move on to then what happens after women are um found guilty. I mean obviously clemency is is more prevalent than we might think but then for women who are sent to prison what kind of conditions would they have expected in mid 20th century Ireland?
1: So for the women for the women who were convicted of murder and um, and I mean all but one of them were reprieved they end up in prison. They end up going into a prison estate for women that's very much dwindling. Through the 20th century, women's prisons are just kind of closing left, right, and center because the numbers of women going into the prisons are dropping. Crime rates are dropping. Uh, The number of women entering prison is plummeting. So you have the closure of women's prisons in Waterford, in Sligo, in... Tullamore closes down, uh, Leash stops taking women. So they're all kind of being concentrated into Limerick prison or Mount Joy prison in Dublin. So they're, they're held in obviously not, not amazing conditions because the conditions they're going into are mid 19th century and for many prisoners today, still mid 19th century conditions, um, but you have women always as an afterthought. So because they're such a small portion of the prison population, they just get shunted around from place to place as needs must. So for example, in the fifties, the Borstel for young offenders in Conmel closes and the young men are moved up to the women's prison in my joy. And they have a handful of women still at this stage. And they're like, well, where will we put these women? I know we'll put them in the basement. So the women go into the basement of that wing because there's not enough of them to kind of justify anything on its own. And it's not until, you know, 1999 that you get the first kind of purpose built women's prison again in Ireland after a gap of like 150 years. So the women are going into fairly, I suppose, grim prison conditions. Um, But I suppose the flip side of that is they're going into a regime that's no worse and probably better than the women who find themselves in religious homes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask is that is that one of the reasons why there's so little female, official state female imprisonment? Because we have essentially unofficial privatized prisons already. Yeah, I know. Even though we don't call them that.
1: I know, but we kind of should. And in criminology, I think it's very much, it's really interesting. You talk about trends and, you know, private prisons and, like G4S running prisons all over the world. Like, well, you know, we, we had a bit of that, you know, in the past as well. It just wasn't G4S. It was religious congregations. And for, for so many women who were sentenced to offenses that were not murder. So if you were prosecuted for murder, but you don't end up getting sentenced or convicted for that, but you get convicted of, for example, concealment of birth or manslaughter, then there was a very good chance that your sentence would explicitly involve a period in a religious home and um, mostly Magdalene Laundries or the Henrietta Street convent um, in Dublin. And then, so you can see these are explicit parts of the sentence, which I think I, I don't expect, I, I, I hadn't really expected that to be such a big part of the research and then you're just going through, you know, case after case and it's, you know. Twelve months in the High Park, 18 months in St. Patrick's. And um, so you have, yeah, these women's prisons closing, because prison is no longer viewed as appropriate for women. And you can see those decisions being made in the courtroom at sentencing. You have the judge who's trying to weigh up, you know, prisoner Belandre or prisoner Henrietta Street. And you have the defense barrister who says, I uh, uh, judge, you know, this is her first defence, like, come on put her in the religious home, not the prison and very much the idea that the prison is the worst place because the prison is, that's the place where you put uh, the petty, but uh, a offender so not, you know, crimes of murder, which are very unlikely to be repeated, but you have the woman who is the sex worker or the vagrant or the shoplifter. She's the one who's in prison. And the idea of like these young women who've been convicted of infant murder, for example, or manslaughter. The idea of them co-mingling with, you know, the shoplifter is horrific, but they're also, and that's one of the reasons, but they're also going into the religious homes because that's the place where, where women go here sexually kind of at risk or morally at risk. So there's a criminal and the criminal goes by way of the prison or you have the woman whose offense is more kind of morally tainted. And she's going to the religious home and obviously you know you see in the debate very much like oh we're sending them to your religious home because it's for their own good because this is the only chance they have a rehabilitation which we now know looking back with very much nonsense and i i don't know how much of it they believed at the time it's certainly the case that there were people who were aware the stigma of the laundry was worse than the stigma of prison it's very kind of hard to know what what the rationale was behind it for everyone um but uh, but yeah, so you have this kind of parallel system of detention running um which like for the majority of the 20th century
0: mm-hmm. and, and then of the women who, who go to prison or who go to these laundries, where did they go afterwards? What, what kind of evidence do you find of how they re-enter society?
1: For the it's easiest to kind of see with the cohort of women who are sentenced to death and then have their sentence commuted because you can kind of follow them they have more, um, They have more records basically kept on them because they, you know, they have to spend time in my joy. There's this more record keeping attached to a sentence of death as opposed to, you know, manslaughter. And so for these women, there's 21 women who are reprieved and their ultimate kind of outcome very much depends on a whole range of factors related to like their, their social capital, the kind of perceived morality of the family that they'd come from. Um, the crime that they would committed, if their kind, of, their um, presumed kind of intellectual ability to engage with the world. So of 21 reprieved women, there's 11 who are conditionally released from Maidan Prison to a religious home. Some of these, for various reasons, they they stay in that home until they die, and others they kind of rejoin the community, maybe not the community they'd come from. But they rejoin a community. And like so the difference can be between one woman um who was convicted of the murder of her infant, and she's from a very, a very poor family. And it's a poor family also judged to be very morally suspect because um her mother has a reputation, she now has a reputation. So there's this debate at the Department of Justice level, which is, you know, should we release her? Her mom is writing to us and asking If we can release her and they ultimately decide no, because it's not a morally appropriate family for us to release her to, Uh, So she ends up in religious confinement for the rest of her life, you know, versus a woman who was an older woman, um, who ran the family farm and she's released from Madrid prison to the Bethany home, but she stays there a handful of months and then she writes to the minister and says, "Uh, right, I'm away. I'm off to Northern Ireland to live with my son and you can just see different women's levels of agency very much dependent on, you know, their own upbringing, their own capacity to, I don't know, have autonomy in the world. And for those women that didn't, the Department of Justice was certainly never going to give them the benefit of the doubt. So if you came from a slightly more respectable family, there was a good chance that you'd be released. If you didn't, there was very little chance you were getting out. There was one woman and they wrote to her husband a few times and they said, you know, she's in the laundry at the moment. Will you take her back? And he absolutely refused to take her back. So she remains in the laundry for the rest of her life. Um, versus other women who, there was one case from the 1920s. It was a woman who killed her, her employer and she'd been having an affair with the husband of the employer. So she, this is obviously, this is a potentially a very kind of morally tainted case. And you would think that this woman might end up being released from prison to a laundry where she'd spend the rest of her life. That's absolutely not what happened. She was released from prison to Henrietta Street, which was the institution for the better type, um, to use their own terminology. And she's just this very impressive young woman who can engage uh, who works hard, who seems to kind of display, uh, some acumen and they say to her, we will release you. We'll release you home to your father. And she says, no, I, I don't want to go home. I can't go home. Can't go back to the same community. So she ends up taking uh, a position of paid employment with the same congregation of sisters. Um, and it's just, it's absolutely, it's a very small sample. But some women seem to be able to transition back into the community, but most either weren't given the opportunity or just could not face going back.
0: This is all really fascinating. Do you think you'll keep working in these areas or are you kind of casting your net wider for your future work?
1: I think, I don't know, I don't know about you. I feel like once you've done a big piece of work, that's it, like you may move on and do other things, but it's not like you'll ever stop researching it. I don't know if you find that with like what you had researched, like a PhD, for example, you're never not going to be that guy. That's just, that's what you do. So I think um, this, I suppose I'm in this forever now. Um, but, you know, take it on and you can't, you know, work on it forever at the same tilt, I suppose. So uh, the new project relates to the Northern Irish border. So there's a bit of histories of kind of crime and punishment in there as well. Um, and kind of bringing it up to date with a more contemporary look at you know what's the lived experience of the border, what's the lived experience of border security, and um, how did communities react to Brexit? So uh, very much, I suppose, in many ways, kind of moving away from this. Um, while this will, I don't know, always be something that I am researching and writing about, I suppose.
0: Well, th- thanks so much. I mean, as as I think this is all made clear. I mean, this is a really multi- multifaceted and fascinating book. Gender and Punishment in Ireland is out now with Manchester University Press and is obviously well worth checking out. Thanks so much, Dr. Black.
1: Thanks very much, Ian.